Hello and welcome to another episode of FireDev, a fireside chat with developers. Today I have Ite Meiri here with me and he is an ex-Cisco and current Intel engineer. So welcome Ite and do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, yeah sure. Yeah, so my name is Itai Meiri. I'm a software engineer at Intel. I've been working there for uh, almost 17 years. And um, I have three kids. And in my spare time, I maintain an OpenGL Tutorials uh, website at oglev.org. And recently, in the past uh, year and a half, also a YouTube channel by the same name, where I continue my activities of creating... Um, OpenGL and um, also planning some game development in the future, uh, tutorials in video format. Okay, so what was it like working at Cisco and what did you specifically do there? Okay, so um, uh, about uh, 20 years ago, uh, I worked at uh, two startup companies, uh, which was a very interesting experience uh, being a young developer. And um, so the first one uh, was hit by the, uh, the dot-com uh, bubble, if you remember. And also there was the, the September 11th 11 attacks at the time. And it all came down together with the market uh, crashing. And then the first startup uh, was shut down. And uh, very quickly, I moved to another uh, company, also a startup, which was uh, purchased by Cisco Um after about a couple of years of activities. And um, so it was very interesting because I was still not very experienced, just uh, just a few years working in the, in the industry and uh, moving to a big company from a very small company. But uh, I think um, the, the transition itself was, was okay because the way that uh, Cisco works is that they are basically a company that was built by purchasing and integrating uh, smaller companies, a lot of startups. Um, so they know how to how to do, do this well. They, they give you the, um, the feeling that you, you continue working inside your own team and you know you don't need to change much of your culture uh, or, or um, all, the, the, all the processes. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the main problem there was that it required us to um, um, to do a, a, a longer commute. Okay, so if previously uh, it took me uh, 10, 15 minutes to get to work because uh, the company was uh, located in the same city, I now had to commute uh, for, uh, for one hour. And I know that in many places in the world, uh, Especially in America, they they would probably laugh right now because it's it's very common for many people to do an hour or more commute. But for us, uh, uh, I mean, we I guess we're spoiled in a way. Um, uh, here, many people are, are able. I mean, depending on where you live, of course. But at least I, I live in Haifa, Israel, and uh, so we have a large. Uh, center of high tech down uh, downtown, and it's very easy to get to. Uh, especially back then, you know, twenty years ago, the traffic was less and uh, all that. Um, so it was very difficult for me to uh, to maintain this commute for a long time. So after about a year and a half, I decided that I need to uh, shorten it in a way, 
and then I moved to uh, to Intel. Um, but in terms of working at Cisco, you know, we, we continue working on the same product, only now that it was a, a, a larger scale. So it was integrated into um, a bigger product by Cisco. Um, it was the product itself was um, uh, enabled um, the 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 idea that you can access files on your Windows server that are located remotely, and and get the, the impression that it is uh, hosted locally in your own office. Okay, so it's a, a lot of tricks and optimizations uh, on if you know the the SIFS protocol or the SMB, what what Samba, the open source uh, file sharing uh, for Windows. Allowing you to con- to to connect from from Linux, from Linux to, to Windows, so it was a lot of work on this protocol, making it uh, make, making it more optimized so that you can uh, uh, do remote work and um, and and yeah, having the impression that it it is done locally. Okay, and so that company that got bought by Cisco was it Actana? Actona, yeah, Actona. Actona. And so um, when companies get bought by larger companies, I don't know how it is at Cisco, so this is why I'm going to ask. It, it's some companies are notorious for buying them and then shelving their products and then like their company basically just getting shut down. Was that the case for Actona at all? And did you have to move on to a new project or was that the case for other you know, companies that Cisco bought that you saw when you were there? Okay, so so for us it was very different. I mean, we as I said, we, we continued working on the same product. Only now it was uh, integrated into their framework. Okay, so I don't remember all the specific details. I think the uh, the acquisition took place in August two thousand and four. And so initially we simply continued working on the same product. And what what Cisco tried to do is to um, have their uh, marketing team, their uh, basically their business unit, uh, pick up uh, where we were and 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 just make it a larger scale. So offer it to more companies because you know products like that uh, people don't appreciate it. But um, oftentimes, you know, technological people they have great ideas for great ideas for. Um, uh, for various products that can be sold to uh, to companies, to big corporations, whether it is security or networking or whatever, not not like an app or, or social media stuff like that, but to, to big corporations, and then they don't appreciate what it takes to actually make a sale. And then I remember that the people told us that it can make it can take uh, you know ten months to a year or more than that just for all the engagement and for the company to do their testing until they decide that they're gonna um, uh, buy our product and integrate it into their processes it can take a long time and um, very it's very challenging for all those small companies that are you know trying to to break out and and start doing uh, sales get get the money flowing in um, so so Cisco, um, enabled us to reach larger uh, markets, to engage with more cu- uh, customers, and eventually they started integrating the product uh, into uh, 
uh, into their largest, larger portfolio of products because they were doing similar stuff. So, for example, if we we were working on the Windows uh, file sharing protocol, they were doing similar stuff for uh, for HTTP. Okay, so they they were building various uh, caching solutions. So, if if your company is doing a lot of, uh, I mean, every company is doing a lot of web access and in many cases because of uh, of the business needs many people are accessing uh, the same resources online so uh, a system that can cache uh, proxy and cache uh, these websites uh, can often provide uh, increased performance for the for the lo- local uh, user in the office so they were doing similar stuff in http and they just wanted to to uh, provide the customer with more capabilities, so not only HTTP but on also uh, Windows, uh, you know, f- um, uh, centralized uh, file sharing, and um, I think that that was at the time that uh, I quit. So I don't, um, I was not really involved with, with that so much, but I remember that I was still working on simply the same features that I started working on. Uh, previously, so it's not it's not that big of a change, at least for us. But for other companies, um, well, I don't really know much. Uh, I remember that, that that while we were there, they they uh, acquired more companies and they integrated them as well. I mean, into the facility and and, and everything. But we didn't. Uh, we were not very much in touch with the other business units. So that that was also the thing that you you. You were still um, only with the people that you were uh, that you uh, work with, and also when you hired people, uh, you were the one that was responsible for uh, for doing uh, all the interviews, and then <clears throat> you would present the the, the new hires uh, during the interview process your product, and then they they would come and they start working on that product. Okay, so you were not doing interviews for other business units for products that you are not familiar with. So it was very, very uh, self-contained in that regard. Okay. And with startups traditionally, actually, for, first of all, how, when did that startup, you know, begin Actana? So I joined uh, early 2000, was it? Or, 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 or during the, uh, yeah, I think it was April, April 2000. And I think they started about a year or or, or a couple of years earlier, and they had um, they also did a sweet a change of strategy. I think they also started with something else, uh, more about uh, HTTP and web caching. I think they had a web caching solution because uh, the guys that uh, started this company and um, three three people by the name Israel. Okay, so they called the they they initially called their company Triple I Networks because you know <laughs> their, their their initials were all the same. So um, and they started with with web caching because they had experience um, with that with that domain. One one was a professor and was working on uh, distributed systems. Another one came from a different company that was also involved with networking. So had, they had a lot of networking uh, experience and they wanted to optimize the web. So I think they started with 
with the web caching and then <clears throat> sorry they they moved through, um, they they felt that um, it was not working very well and and they um, felt that there was uh, an opportunity with SMB or uh, SIFS, the, the the Windows protocol, and they decided to move to uh, uh, to file sharing. And they had some proto prototype for that. And uh, when I was uh, when I started working there, it was exactly the time when we kind of moved from a prototype to an actual product. So it was a very good opportunity to uh, to to um, uh, make an make a, uh, have an effect on the on, on a new product. It's not like when you oftentimes when people start working on in companies they they get into very established products and they start working on some small feature and often it's very it's very uh, difficult to really understand the entire system. But when you start at the right moment, uh, if you get the opportunity to to really build the system from scratch, then you're in in a good position to uh, to, to continue and um, and promote yourself. Okay, and with startups traditionally, especially like technology startups, when you join relatively early, they give stuff like you know shares and stuff like that. And when they get bought out by a big company, there's obviously usually a payout, and sometimes the employees that were there pretty early on you know, get something. So, so did you and the rest of the team get anything extra as a result of the Cisco buyout other than, you know, your regular salary? Yeah, so we got, I mean, honestly, um, I think from from retrospect, if, you're, if, you, if you want to get rich um, by joining a startup, then you really need to be in a very high level position inside the company. So like the director of development or uh, executive vice president of R&D or whatever, because otherwise, even if the company, I mean, it's, it's obviously very different. It's, 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 if, if, if the company is a hundred people and uh, I mean, uh, we, we were purchased for a hundred million dollars, uh, which sounds a lot, but you know, there are many uh, people in, uh, in line uh, taking their share before you, so there there are investors <laughs> and and the angels yeah. and all that stuff and founders and then when you get to the to the to the head of the line, it's like um, uh, you know Oliver Twist. Can, can I have some more, sir? So yeah, the the scrum. So yeah, I mean we we got shares, but I mean if you compare it to like a company like uh, Intel, Microsoft, all the all the big companies that are uh, giving you a bonus salary, so uh, like uh, I don't know, depending on two, three salaries a, a year, and then um, uh, you go to a startup, so you just get your salary and you don't get any bonus at the end of the year, and then after a few years, the company is uh, purchased, and then you get some some big uh, amount of money, but it's still when you compare it to working in another company to what you were able to to make. At the same time, just with standard bonuses, I don't know. So, so again, it depends on whether it's a hundred million dollars or one billion dollars. So, so it, it, I mean, but but I, whenever I look at these um, at the numbers, when when it's in the press and I and I and when it's uh, at that order, 
of a few tens of millions or even a hundred million. I know that uh, people will probably not make a lot of money from it unless they are uh, part of the uh, the senior management team mm-hmm. or very close to that. Then, or, yeah, or, or the founders the essentially. Yeah, of course, the founders usually make a very nice uh, uh, amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but obviously then they took the risk, and obviously they would have, yeah. you know, with a lot of you know startups, they would have been you know doing the work when not much money, if any money was coming in. So yeah, that I think that is fair enough that you know they're the ones first in line. Okay, so yeah. why did you leave Cisco? And like ultimately at Tana as well. Yeah, so so it mostly because of the commute. Uh, I I found okay. it to be very uh, difficult, not just the distance, but also you know the the traffic, the way that specifically my commute was uh, about uh, the 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 last uh, quarter of of the distance was just uh, uh, sitting in traffic. Uh, and waiting to get there on the, on the, the last few kilometers of the way just to, to get into the into the into the office uh, it was very uh, tiring and also at night you know you, you leave the office at uh, 6 or 7 p.m and then you know you have another hour to drive to get to to get home so uh, you know it, it was just not I was I was just not happy with that so, I told myself I have to to find something which is closer. And uh, okay. Intel, Intel is, it has, a, I mean, Intel's one of the the, the largest R and D uh, office in Israel for for Intel is in Haifa. I mean, today back then certainly today they have uh, other locations in Jerusalem and other places, but I think that uh, Haifa is still the largest uh, location. So it was uh, very, uh, it made sense. Okay, that's good. And what sort of technologies at Cisco and, you know, at Tana did you use? Like what, you know, languages, what technologies, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so the product itself was developed in Java, which may, um, I mean, may, may surprise some people, especially then, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, it did. But, uh, uh, I was expecting yeah. C, please say C or something like that. Yeah, th- this is what you would expect. But mm. um, I don't know. People, people. It, it's just a, a cultural thing because the, the the major powers, the major technological powers in the company, they selected Java, and uh, they made some experiments and they came to the conclusion that um, Java was all right. So the um, that the uh, the advantages uh, outweigh the, the disadvantages, and this is what we uh, what we use. So um, we used, I think, uh, IntelliJ uh, IDEA for the development, and uh, everything was done in Java. Um, also, I think the the tools. There was some. I mean, some people were doing web development, but but for me, it was mostly. Because I was in the core team on the, on the actual server, then it was all all Java. Okay. Um, and so, what made you join a startup? Because the company before, which I think was Camelot, and then Actana, yeah. both startups. Um, what made you join a startup instead of going for 
a more traditional bigger company from the start yeah so if i remember correctly um i just went to a few interviews and uh, and Camelot at the time was very uh, was very attractive. It was a, was a high profile company, and it just seemed cool. And everything there um, ticked to uh, what I was interested at the time, which was uh, kernel uh, kernel development, and um, it just seemed like the, the best option. And then when when the company shut down, and it was like a, a very um, long and agonizing process because um, initially there were like three, I think three waves of layoffs until the company was finally shut down and I survived all of the, all of the, all of these uh, layoffs. And there was kind of like one of the guys who, who, who closed the door, shut the, shut down the, the, the lighting and everything and, and closed the door. So, and then when, when that, um, and when I was out of there, I just looked around and I went to a couple of interviews and I had, I just had an, an excellent interview with, with Akhtana. And I think it's often like that when, when you go to a place and, and you have, sometimes you have an excellent interview just because you, you connect well with the people uh, on the interview. And this is what uh, I felt that, um, that the, the interview went very well, and the the, the interviewers were, were very nice, and and uh, you know a great chemistry. And uh, at the same day, they they called me up, and they said that they want to uh, to give me a, a job proposal because I went there and I did a few interviews in a row. So they just moved me from from one person to the next. I I did like three or four interviews all the way up to the director of development. And then in that evening, they he called me up and said, look, we, we want to give you a job proposal. And then, you know, just um, um, just made sense to, to start working there. So it's not like uh, I, I, not like I told myself I want to work specifically, specifically in a startup. It was just the, the, the opportunity presented itself. Okay. That's, that's fair enough. And what was it, you know, like working at Intel? And what do you, I mean, no, what is it like for working at Intel? Because, you know, you've been there for about 17 years, you said. And what yeah. do you do there currently? And how has that changed over that time period? Yeah, so so that's that changed a lot. I mean, um, Intel is, is like that where, you know, in some companies... Um, when, when they have product that they, they are selling to companies, to customers, and they need to, um, to maintain these products over the years. So sometimes, uh, you would go there and you find yourself, uh, just maintaining a piece of software where everyone is happy. The customer is happy. The customer keeps, uh, paying for, um, you know, bug fixing few features here and there, but there is not a lot of uh, changes and the companies is happy because they have a paying customer. So they, they just need to uh, to satisfy this company to this customer and they have a team that does that, but there are no like major changes and it's the same code, possibly some old technology. But, but uh, the way that it works for Intel is that everything changes 
uh, all the time. So um, in some cases, I know people in some teams that they keep developing the same technology, but they they do major changes in it over the years. So it's not like the same piece of code or it's not like stagnating or anything. It keep, they keep, keep making breakthroughs. But in many other cases, you work on a project and um, that project does what it's supposed to do. And then they decide to uh, that they have uh, higher priorities and they will simply start a new project and they will move the team to another, uh, to, to this new technology or whatever. And for some, some people, it, it may be, some people, you know, find themselves in kind of new environment and they may not like it but but for me it was uh, always uh, most I mean, most of the time was okay so i i moved through several technologies and several projects i mean when i started it was all about virtualization technology okay so this was at the end of 2005 i remember it's december 2005 and they at the time uh, vt virtual technology in, in the hardware was a was was a major thing, right? Because there was there was VMware and there, there were a few other solutions that were using a software solution to do virtualization of one operating system on on another. And um, Intel saw the opportunity to improve the performance and the security um, of of virtualization, so they started adding. Uh, uh, features to the hardware to do everything faster and more secure. And this was called VT, Virtualization Technology. And we were working on a product uh, for, for security, uh, kind of like a demonstration uh, product, but Intel also tried to, to sell it to, to companies. And um, eventually, due to various problems, this uh, it didn't pan out and, and the, the, the project was shut down. And I found myself uh, kind of like without a project. So, and then I heard about graphics, and then this was actually my first uh, interaction with the, or my first encounter with graphics. They had another team there in the same uh, same building, different uh, different level, and just went over there with a couple of guys. We we talked to them, and we decided it was very cool to work on graphics. And and me and those guys, we just moved there together. And this team was doing um, um, kind of um, a, a product that take or, or software that takes an offloading solution that takes the vertex processing. So everyone who's working on graphics knows that there's um, vertex processing and there's a pixel processing. Back then, today with we the pipeline, the, uh, the graphics pipeline is more complex, but. Uh, uh, usually everything is done in the hardware vertex uh, all, all in the entire pipeline both the vertex and the pixel uh, shading but uh, at the time intel was not very uh, very good at graphics so they wanted to help the gpu by offloading some of the stuff to the specifically the vertex uh, shading to the cpu and this team was doing just that using um the CPU, the, the latest technologies at the time, which was like um, SSC4, I think, or one, one of the generation, you know, they started with MMX and then they moved to SSC, SSC1, 2, 4, and everything. Today we have um, AVX. And um, so 
The idea was to, to offload some of the work from the GPU to the CPU in order to increase the overall performance. And that was the job of the team. So I, I thought that the product was very cool. The idea was very cool. We, we had to work with a lot of games, which was also very cool, you know, to take a game to, to make sure that everything is working correctly, to do a lot of benchmarking. And um, so I moved to this team and um, I was there for, for, um, for, a lot, for, for many years I was there, but, but again, we moved from, from one product to the, to the next because eventually the GPU was able to, to pick up the momentum and improve to the point where the CPU was not required. Everything was, you could do everything on the GPU and then we, we moved to another technology and another product. And eventually, about five years ago, um, Intel decided to uh, to switch priorities to 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 lower the priorities of graphics, at least in 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 our business group. And um, and then I moved to uh, a project about the, uh, a deep learning project. Uh, so and this is what I'm actually working today. Also, it's, it's not the same product today. What I'm working on is um, helping, basically helping the effort to or to be part of the effort to improve the performance of uh, future uh, Intel technology for uh, for deep learning applications. Okay, so if if you look at the market today, deep learning is is a, is a big thing. A lot of stuff is done using deep learning, machine learning. A lot of uh, very di- difficult problems are solved using deep learning uh, technology and every everybody is trying to to get their hands into it i mean from from a hardware perspective everybody is trying to uh, to provide some sort of a solution so it can be on the gpu like nvidia amd uh, sometimes uh, very specialized uh, acceleration accelerators that uh, are doing it with a custom made cpu and very often, Intel is is buying out these companies uh, in order to, you know, because no one knows what will uh, take, what will work best. But um, we are focusing on the uh, on the servers. So there are new features that are planned for uh, for future future platforms, future CPUs, and we are helping the people that are uh, architecting these uh, these features. Uh, in order to, Im- to to improve the performance, so when that chip hits hits the market, uh, it will do what it's supposed to do. In terms of performance, it will deliver the the expected performance. Okay, um, you mentioned that you worked on some stuff where you are optimizing games because Intel is you know not a games company though they you know make mm-hmm. a lot of you know, technologies that are important to the gaming industry. So was that, you know, bigger companies essentially saying we've got this, you know, new game we're working on, maybe with some new hardware integration or technologies with that engine. Can you have a look at optimizing it? Or what? how, how did that work? And what sort of games did you, you know, do the optimization on? Yeah, so what Intel is doing is that they are investing a lot in having people over in major companies so they have i mean in the case of you know strategic engagements like microsoft and google then they would have an entire team of i don't know how many people 
just to to work with these companies and to make sure like in the case of Microsoft to make sure that you new versions of Windows are working uh, best on on Intel Intel technology and I, and I guess the other companies are doing uh, something very similar uh, but in the case of smaller companies like game development so many I don't know I mean many of the the, the major uh, companies in that, and that field, then Intel uh, kind of has an account with them. So they have one person, two person there uh, to help these uh, people uh, integrate the technology that Intel provides because it's it's very difficult. You know, when you're a hardware company <clears throat> and you, you create a new technology, like, you know, new instructions, which is very, very low level from the point of view of developers. You know, developers today are working with the Unity, Unreal, or any other um, uh, engine. And you've just put out the new instructions that can make some part of the game work very fast. So how how do you get that over to really impacting uh, the products that are coming out? So what do you... One of the ways to to handle that will be to to send a person there, which is an expert, <clears throat> sorry, on that technology, and then help the companies companies that are willing to to do it, uh, help them actually integrate the new instructions or new libraries or whatever into their products. So um, this is and this is called enabling. Uh, or you can call it call it post enabling because these companies will mostly work with existing silicon. Sometimes, in some cases, maybe under some you know conditions NDA, they will uh, they will get access to uh, to silicon before it is released to the market. You know, just to test it and provide feedback and to benchmark and everything. Um, what I'm doing is actually called pre-enabling because we are working on silicon uh, five, six, seven years before it is released, uh, which is one of the major challenges in this uh, in this work. And um, so this is the kind of of engagement that in, Intel has. So we are not working directly with co- with co- uh, with the companies, but we knew people who do work with them, and. Um, and whenever there was an opportunity, um, it's very it's very difficult to to make the flow of information uh, work inside a big company. It's it's always a big uh, always a major challenge. You know, we have certain type of people that are working with companies, and they are getting a lot of uh, feedback. They they know a lot of what is happening right now. What are the problems that uh, the customers are facing, and then you want to to get that information all the way to the people who are working on the architecture of a future CPU, and and uh, it's it, it's a big gap how to get how to get the feedback out. You know, it's like uh, I don't know, like one a big army, and you want to get a certain type of intelligence from one corner to to a very distant corner, and. Uh, it's a challenge. It's always a challenge like that. I, I see it in, even today in, in a different project, in, in the deep learning. Uh, always, they're always always trying to, uh, to 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 get people working as closely as, as, as closely 
as possible to bring down the, the walls between uh, organizations so that people can engage and be more efficient. And um, so we were not working directly with the, um, with the companies because we were kind of like part of the driver team. Our solution was integrated into the, uh, the DirectX driver. So it was just part of Windows and we, it, it, it worked seamlessly uh, under the uh, under the, the, the feet of the uh, of the game. And at the time we were working on all the uh, all the major games. like I remember we had a full stack of CD-ROMs or DVD at the time. And uh, games like Company of Heroes. I remember working a lot of uh, a lot on um, DMC4. That was a, a Devil May Cry, and uh, I don't know Brink. A lot of a lot of titles, and also benchmarks. So like uh, 3D Mark and various other uh, Asterix Mark uh, kind of uh, benchmarks. That we're doing uh, graphic benchmarking. We were also working on on these ex- as well. Okay, so so you were optimizing those games and those benchmarks effectively, and working with their core development team to make sure that they was able to use the Intel technology as efficiently as possible. Is that correct? Is that basically the interaction? Okay, so this actually optimizing the game was the job of an engineer, which was sometimes on site with the company, with the, with the development studio, and sometimes remotely. Uh, but uh, for us, we were more on the driver side. So we were not exactly optimizing the game. We were optimizing the driver, or we were analyzing the driver to find bottlenecks, and then try to uh, introduce, uh, uh, w- since we were doing this offloading uh, solution, we focused on optimizing the CPU part of, of vertex processing. Okay, so it's basically like how a new game comes out and then let's say NVIDIA releases a new set of drivers and they're optimized for that new you know game. Is that effectively like the relationship? Yeah, I mean, um, kind, kind of, yeah. You, you, okay. you, you find that the bottlenecks that the... the uh, the, the game experiences and if it's it, depending on where exactly is the problem it, if it's in the the gpu then the driver team will work on that if the the game doesn't hit the expected uh, frames per second but it's if it's more on vertex processing that this was part of of our solution okay and for big games and i mean just big applications in general was you getting an early version of that of those products before they launched, or was it as soon as it launched, Intel you know purchased a bunch of copies and then you tested it to see if it worked okay or not? Yeah, so I think we mostly worked on the existing uh, released versions. Uh, at least the team was not uh, at the position to get uh, early access. I think perhaps to benchmarks, maybe. I don't remember if, if we were able to get uh, early version of uh, of major benchmarks, but I think in games we just uh, we just bought the games it's, uh, themselves <clears throat> from from the store, you know, and we just had them over there on a shelf and then worked with them. We we didn't have access to the uh, to an early version of a game. Okay, 
and so so far it seems to be that you've been doing low level stuff even when you was in the startups what made you do low level stuff was it just something you fell into or did you have a passion you know for low level when you were a kid or when you did your degree yeah so i was always interested in that i mean i remember when i was a student and um i heard i worked as in in um some uh, ISP, <clears throat> an internet service provider, I was working on uh, customer support, technical support. And then I heard, this is where I heard the, the word Linux for the first time, because I didn't hear about it anywhere else. This was in 97, 98. And then I remember buying the, 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 the CD-ROMs, waiting for a month to get them and trying to, to install Linux without any help and just, uh, you know, bashing my head against the wall to, to get the system up and running. But I, I immediately saw that it was much more uh, advanced. I mean, I don't know if, if advanced the correct word, but, you know, uh, it, it enabled you to do much more than than Windows 95 at the time that everyone was using. So it was much cooler. And then I started uh, exploring uh, C, C++ as a student eventually getting uh, a book about uh, Unix uh, project and just started doing various projects there that were suggested that, you know, can help you get uh, up to speed with this kind of development. So uh, a lot of stuff about process, uh, processes and sockets and multi-threading and, you know, just interested me more than, I don't know, web development um, to this day. I mean, I don't know much about web development, so so I was always working low level, and um, in the in these companies, I mean, Camelot developed a, a security product, so obviously it was very uh, low level, um, and for actually very similar in some respects similar to uh, to Octona, their uh, security product was working on mostly on Windows. On, on low-level file handling. And then when I switched to Actona, some, some of that, uh, some of this uh, information, what I learned there was relevant to the other company as well because of low-level file handling stuff. And so it, again, file sharing, uh, even though it was all uh, a user space uh, product, it was very low-level. And then virtualization technology, again, you work uh, under the operating system, then drivers. Um, and today, you know, a lot of uh, assembly level optimizations. So it was always like that. Okay. And so you've done, so you know, software, you know, development on software, you've done development on hardware, especially you know, low level stuff. What would you say the differences and the similarities are, and which one do you prefer working on? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm not doing, I mean I'm not doing hardware development. Um, I'm I'm always on software. It's just that um, Intel calls it uh, hardware software co-development, where you develop the hardware at the same time that you develop the software that is supposed to run on it. So there are hardware people, architects, 
market, uh, micro architect, the design, the hardware itself, all the uh, the elements of the hardware. And uh, but we are always on the software side. So hardware engineers often see the world from a very low level position. They they have difficulty understanding uh, the needs of the uh, of the software development that will later use their creation. Uh, so we're kind of trying to um, to help them there and and provide the software that will run on the future hardware before the hardware is even produced. So it's a lot of uh, work on simulation and stuff. Um, so so it's always software for me. It's not really like uh, developing developing hardware. Whenever I need to uh, to engage, I mean to to understand what is going on in, with the hardware, I, I go to the architects and and get their help on it. Because you you really need to to be an expert to understand why a piece of of software is working slowly. Uh, you know, you get a trace, and then you go to the architects, and then you you sit with them, try and try to understand why why it is working uh, so slow, or whatever. Okay, and you mentioned before that you sometimes worked on silicon, you know, hardware stuff. Yeah, obviously, even from a software perspective, five, six, seven years before launch. So, what's that process yeah. like? Because let's say if you're working on the you know like a CPU like an Intel CPU for example if that's a half a decade plus before it's due to come out the let's say the GPU that would you know the GPUs that will probably be paired with it are not out yet the motherboards you know traditionally are not out yet like the it might even be a different RAM standard potentially that is just not you know traditionally out yet as is the operating system you know because it could be two you know new versions of an OS in that you know, yeah. you know, in that time. So, what's that like, and you know, what are the restrictions around developing it so early? Obviously, you have to. You can't just develop it, you know, a week beforehand. But you know, what's the restrictions with that? Yeah. So the way that this works is that, um, yeah, th this is one of the major challenges. That uh, I mean, I don't know how long it takes to to do that in other companies, but for Intel, it's it's several years five, six, sometimes more years to develop a hardware, you start by um, kind of um, the first stage is just uh, trying to understand what this uh, future CPU uh, will include in terms of features and what is the target in terms of the, the frequency, what type of memory uh, will this work with, and um, uh, often this is where we do uh, most of our work. And then there's kind of like a pipeline where you, once you finalize what you want to, to put into C CPU, you start to design the architecture and the micro architecture, which is sometimes a, a, there's, a, there's a boundary between them, which is sometimes difficult to, uh, to understand exactly. At least for me, because I'm not part of this effort, so I can't really tell you what is architecture and what is not. And then, once the architecture is uh, complete, uh, they move to uh, to design, where they design the actual, you know, all the the, the gates and everything, uh, the, the the description of the actual hardware, and then they go. This goes to uh, 
uh, to manufacturing and then uh, the first CPU comes back, goes to the lab, they try to bring it up, they have some bugs and, and then it goes back and forth um, to, to manufacturing. And this is where you try to, uh, by, by doing a lot of, I mean, all this is done by software, right? Because you don't have a hardware, so you need to do everything in software. So you, you work a lot with simulations and there are various simulations various types of simulator simulators. Uh, some of them will do uh, functional checks. So um, let's say that you introduce a new, a new instruction, then you can put it in, in, a, in a simulator. And, and a, simulator, a simulator is not like an emulator. Okay, so many people are familiar with emulators where you take, uh, you know, like a Z80 code from uh, from the Spectrum 48K that I used to have 40 years ago, and you can run it today on 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 the latest CPU on Windows, Linux, whatever, and then just uh, play the game. Because what the emulator is doing is just uh, translating the instructions into something which they are supposed to do, and providing a virtual a virtual environment for the for the code to function correctly as if it is the same machine, but they are not trying to uh, simulate the actual instruction in the old CPU. They're just trying, if you, if you have like an add instruction and it's different from the add instruction on, uh, on, uh, on an Intel CPU, they'll just translate the add from, from the old CPU to the new CPU because the result will be the same. But what, this, what a simulator does is that it simulates the actual hardware and it is working, which is why it's working so, so slowly, but it, it provides you um, the actual behavior of the, of the silicon just in software. So everything that is going on in every cycle inside the hardware is simulated in software. So you, you need to bring up this simulator <clears throat> sorry, as, as fast as possible in order to start doing useful work for all the features that you are trying to, to develop. And um, so this is like a function simulator and you can also uh, use a performance simulator. So you will take a piece of, a piece of, uh, of code that is taking whatever number of cycles to run today on an existing hardware and you want to know how fast it will work on a future CPU uh, and to, to bring in not just the changes in the, in the architecture, but also the changes in frequency. Okay, so if today it's working, uh, if you have a CPU today, which is clocking at two gigahertz and it will be 2.5 or three in the future and also changes in the, uh, in the architecture at the same time, you don't really know whether an existing code will run faster. Maybe it will run slower. Who knows? Because maybe you've made some change. You cannot test all the, the software in the world. So you may, may have introduced some changes that are improving the performance of one piece of software, and then it hurts the performance of another piece of software. Okay, so we have, uh, you have a simulator that can tell you the number of cycles that this piece of code will run on given a specific process CPU generation and also and also frequency and um, 
yeah so th- this this is the kind of kind of work that w- that we're doing it's all in okay I mean, writing yeah so what was the interview process like for Intel uh, you know a big company like that you know doing the sort of stuff that you're doing what was it like so the I think I think that the um, the interview process is very simple um I mean, if I compare it to to interviews that I've done in the past with other companies, um, for us and I think for many departments, um, usually you will be interviewed um, by the people that you you're going to work with. So it depends. It depends. I mean, at the, in the past, I was working on a, inside the lar- in, in, as part of a larger team or, or larger department. You know, 150 people. So, and I was interviewing for the entire department. So sometimes the person being interviewed, uh, the position was for my project, and sometimes it it's, it was for other projects. And I was able to explain what the department is doing because the the uh, it's not like there one one guy doing web development and another one doing low level. Most of the teams were doing low level stuff, so it was easy to to explain what the what is the role of the department and what it contributes. And um, today we are in a smaller team, so everyone who is being interviewed is for our team. And um, and you have two interviews of about two hours. And uh, basically, you just just need to to describe your experience. If you've worked with other companies, then we would ask you questions about what what your what was the what was your role there, and what what challenges you had to uh, uh, to to solve, um, and just get, get an understanding of how. How that person performed. I mean, it, it's always a, a big challenge. Is in in, in uh, you need to get to get um, an idea of how well this person is a, as an engineer and and how how fun it would be to work with. And um, so we have like two interviews. First, first interview is people like me, software engineers or hardware engineer, whatever. And then the the second interview is with uh, team leaders or more senior engineers. And if you pass these two interviews, then you are invited to get a job proposal. And that's it. There there are no interviews like in HR or whatever. Just those two interviews. And that's it. So I think it's very simple. Okay. And... So what's your preferred development setup, you know, at work and at home and just in general? Because obviously, you know, every every developer has their preferred setup, you know, the, the hardware, the software. So what's your preferred setup and why? And how has it changed over the years? Okay, so in the past few years, I mean, all of our development is done on, uh, on Linux and uh, using C++. And um, every person has their own preferred development um, environment. So um, I'm using, depends on what I'm on the specific part of the, the system that I'm working on. Sometimes I'm using uh, C-Lion and sometimes I'm using Emacs. 
And, you know, since this is Linux, there's always a lot of um, working with, with VI because whenever you need to bring up some file, some configuration, or even a piece of code that you want to, you want to just uh, uh, quickly fix, then you'd use uh, Vim. And um, some people prefer to work only on C-Lion. So C-Lion is very popular uh, in my team, but it's, you know, changes from one team to the next. And um, at home, I'm also using uh, Linux, but I'm all, only use, using uh, Emacs. So all my um, graphics works, graphics work is done on Emacs. And also, again, also always using Vim from the terminal to do quick, uh, quick editing of configuration or uh, anything else. So it's very okay. simple. Okay, so that leads me on to my next question. You've kind of answered it, but I'm going to you know, dive into a bit more. Vim or Emacs and why? So, I mean, I'm, I'm not biased to, to any of them. And I'm always interested in watching videos that uh, help you improve your development workflow. I, I always feel that my development workflow is not optimized enough, that there's a lot more that I can do in whatever environment to improve my, uh, my working speed. And I was trying for a time to, to work uh, exclu exclusively uh, on Vim, but I, I was not able to get to the speed that I can see other people are, are working at. I mean, if you see some YouTube videos, um, of people speed speed editing on Vim, they work much faster than me, and, and I was not able. So when my experience was, my personal experience was that that I can type and edit faster using Emacs. So eventually, I gave up on Vim as the uh, uh, the major uh, development environment and switched to Emacs. But whenever I need to do very quick editing, then I would fire up Vim from the command line. And also, I was able to get all the plugins working better on Emacs. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Swiper, Swiper and Helm. They are excellent uh, packages on Emacs that uh, I was able to get up and running. It often happens that um, I read some tutorial on how to do, uh, how to implement some, or how to in, um, get some pl plugin up and running, and you know it ends up not working on your environment, and you spend a lot of time uh, trying to 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 get this to work, and eventually just just give up, and then work with whatever you have. So, um, in terms of the plugins that I was able to to get to work. I'm working with Swiper, Helm, and a bunch of other stuff. And um, uh, I really like being able to, to jump around using Swiper, also uh, Ace Jump, stuff like that. And um, this is what I use on Emacs. And on, on Vim, I was just not able to, to get a, a good replacement for that. Okay. I mean, that's, partially. That's fair enough. And why? You know, Linux over using something else like Windows or Mac for your preferred OS. And has that always been the case? Yeah, I mean, 
personally at home um the last versions that i used was of windows was windows 95 i think after switching to linux i i, I never looked back I, it always felt more natural to for me to work in a unix environment and this is what i i, I taught myself to thought, taught myself to do uh using books and everything i always invested in in that direction <clears throat> and i don't know just for me it was uh, always simpler just uh, you know understanding how to uh to build the kernel and everything and oh it, it, all, it always seemed to me like i understand more about the system than people who are working windows working on windows and um, I know I just like it. And at work, they just use uh, Linux all over, so so it's a no-brainer. Uh, okay. Let me tell you something else about just came came to my mind about Emacs and Vim. It's sometimes the uh, what makes a difference is that if you have someone who is an expert on one of the uh, one of the tools, and if you have someone to to learn from. But for us, I mean, for me, uh, I, I never had someone who is an expert on either one to, to help me uh, improve on, on that specific tool. So I always had to do it myself. And people, people tend to, um, to, to get away from, from these tools. I mean, young people today definitely prefer to use uh, whatever GUI environment. So this is why CLAN is, is so popular uh, in my team and other places as well, or other, you know, in case of Windows, you would use you would use Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. Not many people use Vim or Emacs on Win on Windows. I mean, probably much the, the percentage of people using such tools is much lower on Windows than it is on Linux. So it's, yeah, uh, it's difficult that. to find someone who can who can just you know fix your problems right off the bat and and sometimes it's it's the 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 make or break of working with such a tool. Okay, and uh, what's your preferred Linux distro? So for many years I was working with Ubuntu, and in the past few months I've switched to Linux Mint. Um, before that, I also used Fedora for a few years. I mean, I started with Slackware. The Slackware Linux was the first uh, Linux distribution that I've used. Um, I remember buying the CD-ROM from, from a place called CD-ROM.com. I think it, it no longer uh, exists, something called the Walnut Creek or something like that. They were selling uh they would send you like a very nice package of uh four cd-roms or dvd I don't, I don't remember of the entire distribution and this was slackware and, and from slackware i moved i think to fedora i also tried freebsd for a few months it was a very long time ago and then i eventually moved back to uh to linux and then uh, Ubuntu, and, and now Linux Mint. But you know, Linux Mint is also based on Ubuntu, so it's not um, not that big a deal. Okay. And um, what do you think of stuff like VS Code that has become really, really popular over the last few years? And have you checked it out yourself? I checked it. Yeah, 
Um, I don't know. Um, it didn't. Um, it didn't click for me. Um, maybe I'll try it again in the future. Um, I'm re I'm really comfortable with my Emacs uh, environment. I would like to. I would like to improve it. I mean, if if, if I can find the time or, or get the help to maybe learn a bit of uh, Lisp, Emacs Lisp, Elisp. Um, I think that when when you are an expert on this kind of environment, then you you can really be uh, very efficient in terms of tailoring your envi your environment to the specific project that you're working on. So. I don't feel that I'm there yet. I think that I have a lot more to to improve. Uh, it's often a challenge because you need to do your actual work, but you want to improve your environment. So when when exactly do you do you find the time to to improve your environment that will make you work more efficiently? You know. So um, um, I can't say much about Visual Studio Code. I know it's a bit. I know it's it's popular. Um, specifically in my team, no one is using it. So, uh, okay. you know, it it's not like I can actually... on Windows, perhaps, compared yeah. to, let's say, Linux. Yeah, so on Windows, I, I simply use Visual Studio Community Edition. Mm -hmm. So so the I try to make my uh, tutorials work both on Windows and Linux. And on Windows, I'm using uh, the latest version of the community vi uh, version of uh, Visual Studio. So I don't know... I mean, Visual Studio Code is more lightweight, right? It is, yes. It's a lot more yeah. plugin friendly. I think that's what. Uh, I mean, in my head, uh, I might be wrong. I see kind of like a modern Vim or Emacs, where it's not as bloated as something like Visual Studio or Xcode, where it's a lot more flexible. There's a lot of plugins. You can sort of tailor it yeah. to your needs. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. the Windows equivalent even though obviously i think vman emacs is on windows but it's like the windows equivalent for you know those pieces of software so it's it's almost like people that never really worked on linux and never because because visual studio as an ide is very good in my opinion so i think a lot of the time they you know just use that or maybe intellij or something or maybe android studio if you're doing android development but now mm -hmm. vs code mm -hmm. has come along you can do all those little different things in one, including web development as well. And especially considering yeah. software like Brackets from Adobe is no longer supported. Uh, so, so I think it's it, it's like a you know Linux Vim Emacs experience, but on Windows. I mean, that's my take on it. Uh, so for VS Code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Um... Yeah, so I don't do a lot of. I mean, if if it wasn't for my uh, for my website, I, I wouldn't do any. That that's mainly the only reason why I have uh, a Windows partition on on one of my machines, just to to be able to run Visual Studio and to test the code there. Yeah. And so, I mean, in the past when we were working on uh, DirectX drivers, then obviously it was all Windows work, and Visual Studio was the simply the the only environment that everyone was using and i remember it was always very uh, very good in terms of um, you know quickly switching from uh, 
from editing to debugging with a single click, putting breakpoints everywhere. Um, I mean, it's it's working for me faster than I can do it on on Emacs. It's for Emacs, it's always some kind of configuration, everything. So this is what Visual Studio is is good at. I think for 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 debugging, it's very good, and also the IntelliSense and everything is working well. So for C, C++ development, that, that's the only thing that I ever tried to, to use it for. Just C, C++. I mean, we are using uh, Python as well as, as a tool to, I mean, in order to develop various supporting tools. So, um, um, but, but I never tried to, to develop on Python, uh, develop Python on Visual Studio. I think it, it can be, it, it is supported, I think, but I never tried that. Okay. And so you, you know, briefly mentioned that you run a website called ogldev.org. And that's actually the first yeah. time I, you know, came across your work, you know, before I knew you, you knew that you worked at Cisco and currently at Intel, I knew you from that. What made you start that website, which is, you know, obviously OpenGL, real, you know, related compared to, you know, doing something else? Because you've obviously, you know, you have your job. And but obviously this is like your side, you know, project. Whether or not you want to make this into a full time thing, we can talk about that. But you've done a lot of stuff over the years. What made you do a website on OpenGL versus the other low level technology stuff that you've worked on instead of creating tutorials for that instead? Yeah. So for me, whenever I start working on a new technology or a new project. It's very, um, the way that I learn or, or understand how everything is doing, is working, is by doing stuff um, from, from the bottom up and, you know, just in order to, to understand it, you, you need to do everything yourself. Kind of like what I told you about the, the other product that I worked on with Actona, the, the way that I was part of the uh, the first few people that uh, developed it from, from scratch. So uh, when I started working on graphics, um, you know, I, I started taking up uh, various features or bugs and, and I always felt that I don't, I, I, I don't understand the entire pipeline. Uh, just by fixing something here or there or doing some small feature, and even though I was, I started reading some books on on three D graphics. I still didn't understand how everything works together. And so, the way that um, uh, the, the way that it is working very well for me is to uh, learn to do something and then to explain it to others. So that was the idea. So initially, uh, that's what uh, OpenGL was not my first uh, step. In graphics, I actually started with uh, a book by Andre Lamoth called uh, "Tricks of the 3D uh, uh, Graphics Programming Gurus," which is I just did um, a review of that book. If ever, anyone is interested, you can find that on my channel. And um, the book explains how to build a full rasterization engine from scratch, and so. That was my first uh, attempt, and and this is what really um, 
this is how I learned to do graphics and understand, you know, the pipeline and all the math involved. And I remember my first project was called Backward X, uh, my, just a hobby project because it was, you know, I was working on DirectX at the time and I, I was not familiar with OpenGL. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to, to develop DirectX myself, the same API with software, and I would call it BackwardX. And I remember it was, it was a lot of fun because what, what I did was I, I followed up on, on Andre's book, but the API matched what I knew from uh, DX9 at the time. And um, I continued like that, and, and it really helped me understand stuff, you know, like the clipper and uh, a lot of the, the elements in the pipeline. And um, eventually, I don't remember what happened before, because we switched to, we stopped working on DirectX and we moved to OpenGL eventually, but I think I started, I mean, I don't remember what, what came first, but uh, for some reason I decided to, to start learning uh, OpenGL. And the idea was to, uh, to learn and to explain to others at the same time, because you know, when you do stuff yourself, ju just for yourself, and you get it working, it's cool and everything. But if you if you try to explain it to, to other people why it's working, you often find that uh, you don't really understand it to the core. Okay, you were able to get it working, but um, you don't fully understand everything. And then when people start asking you questions or when you, you, you work on a tutorial and try to explain everything... You, you you start saying to yourself, oh, "Wow, I don't really understand everything here. I, I need to to take a closer look, or do some more experimentations, or or write this uh, equation again and see exactly all the steps, just to make sure that when someone asks me a question, I'll be able to answer it." And that was the idea of the website to uh, uh, to explore and to understand 3D graphics by doing uh, tutorials. So it was exactly like that. I, I, I wanted to understand how shadow mapping works. So I read the other tutorials, I, I made it work, and then I created my own tutorials using my own words because the way that other people explain it is always different than how you see the problem and how you explain it. And once you explain it yourself to, to other people, you, you understand it in a, in a different level. And that was the idea there. I started with a few tutorials and and it uh, it seemed to pick up uh, very well. I mean, most of the uh, of the comments and the feedback were very positive. And so I kept doing it for a few years. And um, you know, eventually, due to various changes in life, um, I didn't have time to work on you uh, on new material. So the website just sat there and then, uh, about a year and a half or a bit more, kind of like because, I guess, maybe because of COVID. I mean, one of the questions that, that I keep asking myself or, or tell or stuff that I tell myself is, why didn't I start doing YouTube earlier? I mean, if, if, I, if I've done YouTube, I mean, because YouTube was there at the end of 2010 when I started the website, uh, YouTube was there. I even remember uploading one video for the skeletal animation uh, tutorial, because this was something that was moving and everything. So I said, why don't I, uh, I'll create just a small video 
to show how it's working and upload it to my channel. But I, I never continued past that. I, all, I was always focused on just writing stuff. And to tell you the truth, often with, with stuff like that, it, it's better to work with a written material, you know, because a person talking on a video, sometimes uh, you cannot understand everything at the, the same rate they, or speed that they are going and you need to go back. And when, when you have the material in front of you, like a book or whatever, or an online tutorial and just go back and forth on the text, sometimes it's, it's more efficient. So I guess most people will, will work with various kinds of media, both written text and books and online tutorials and video tutorials, some kind of a combination. And uh, I don't know what, why why I got to YouTube so so late, but you know that's uh, that's how everything worked uh, eventually. And so and then I, I decided to uh, to do uh, to start. Um, I mean, the idea was that I, I, uh, I didn't work on graphics for several years, and by creating the web, the the channel, the YouTube channel, was kind of like getting back in shape in graphics again. And this is how I felt from one video to another. You know, I also had to learn how to do YouTube, but I also learned graphics again, or just to refresh my memory on stuff that I, I already. I already forgot. Okay. And if, let's say, your YouTube stuff and let's say your website was generating enough income to, you know, supplant your, your day job, would you take it up full-time or, or will it just remain as a part-time hobby? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, I can say this is kind of like my dream um, because... I've been working in the industry for for many years, and I know how I know how to how the way things work in the industry, the the, the positive stuff, the, the the negative, and this uh, this way of working on on your own channel is is very refreshing, I think. So, if if I ever become more popular to the point where uh, it can support my family, then this is definitely something that I would try to do. You know, uh, you, you never commit to anything for, for, for eternity, right? You can always, I mean, if, if you work on such a technical project like uh, video tutorials on a specific uh, subject, you become an expert on that. You can always say that, uh, okay, I want to take a break from that, get, get back to, to a real company and you can just jump back into the water it's 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 a it's a no big thing so uh it's not something that, that I, I tell myself i want to do it for the rest of my uh, career but uh, if i'll be able to to do that for uh, at least a few years then i think it will be i think it will be great uh, a lot of challenges in many in many respects more more difficult than to work on a on a regular company in a regular company oh yeah for but, sure uh, yeah yeah, it's one of those things that anyone that's never done it and from the outside, they just see it as, oh, easy. They just say, oh, you just see in front of the computer, you create a video and you upload it. But, you know, as you know now, no, mm -hmm. there are a lot of challenges, uh, you know, challenges yeah. from, you know, you know, obviously thinking of topic ideas, you know, challenges of actually, you know, 
you know, you, you know, you mentioned it, you know, just figuring out how stuff works. You know, with YouTube, with, you know, recording, it, 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 because I use OBS for recording and, like, you know, just learning about that and then learning some basic Photoshop skills for, you know, thumbnail creation and editing and then some basic Premiere Pro skills and, you know, all that other stuff that goes along with it, but then storing the videos and making making sure you have backups of that and sometimes that can cost extra money and you know if there's any other you know problems that you have and then when you're creating a video uh, i'm sure you've had this issue before where you spend let's say 30 40 maybe an hour or two hours planning a video you go to record it and then something goes wrong and you have to do redo the planning or redo the recording maybe the recording didn't successfully save or maybe you get towards the end of the video and it's not working, especially with a coding project. It, you know, you click, click, run, and it's not working the same way that you, you know, made it work, you know, pre-recording, and you can't fix it in a couple of minutes, and you're at the point where you just know you have to redo it. Uh, um, uh, have you, you know, faced those problems? Yeah. So everything that you said right now is, is sounds familiar to me. I mean, yeah. I mean. If you're, I, I guess, if you're someone who is very interested in software development, but you find yourself, if you, if you don't really love the, the whole YouTube part of editing and uploading and, uh, you know, recording, whether it's on camera, on microphone, or working, all, working through all this uh, YouTube process, if you don't really love doing that, then... Probably YouTube is not for you, but this is exactly what, the reason why I find this so interesting and refreshing. Because usually, uh, you know, software developers who work on regular companies, they have um, very similar sets of challenges, both from, from the technical perspective and also from the personal perspective of, of you know, working with other people you know, dealing with conflicts and, and, you know, making your, making your voice heard and influencing, uh, the, the, the product or whatever. So these are kind of like the, the regular problems that people have in that domain. But then if you go to do YouTube, you suddenly have a whole bunch of other challenges that are not sometimes not technical at all, or not entirely technical in the same sense in the same sense of writing code so and i find is i find it very interesting to 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 understand and and become an expert on so this is what one one of the reasons why why, I, why i'm doing it yeah so yeah i've had all these problems i have from from one video to the next i'm i'm sharpening up my process and i think i'm i'm pretty efficient in the way that I'm doing stuff today, but it's ne definitely not in the level that I hope to be able to do it in the future. And the only problem is, is time. Mm -hmm. Because right now, I'm trying to, uh, to upload a tutorial every two to three weeks. And, you know, when you have a full-time job, it's, um, it's amazing how... If you if you make a mistake along the way, how uh, how badly it can it can push your your schedule um, yeah. and your motivation you, as well? It can no, I don't think I don't have a no. You don't no, have I don't that? have a no. I don't have a problem with motivation. No, uh, I think just um, 
finding the time in order uh, to do to work on on the videos. This is my my biggest uh, challenge, and also improving myself in terms of the tools. So getting a video out every two to three weeks uh, when you have a full-time job obviously you cannot invest a lot of time on the graphics or the animation of the video which is why i think my, my videos are, are very simple in terms of the slides and everything i uh, i'm constantly looking out for for stuff that other people are doing and they they are creating um videos that are much more uh, impressive in terms of the quality of the of the graphics and and the tools some, some of the tools i'm just not familiar with so for example uh, a lot of people are doing animations using adobe uh, illustrator and i haven't found the time to um uh to just learn it so it, it sounds silly but th that's just the way it is and uh, i'm using kden live to edit all my videos um uh, in most part, I, I really like this uh, software. I was able to to get up to speed very quickly on that. I remember trying to switch to to DaVinci Resolve at some point, and 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 it was just I remember just spending a couple of hours not being able to to use the same process that I'm used to. And then I told myself, you know, if I'm if if I'm gonna if I'm gonna gonna wait until I'm fully proficient with with resolve then it would take me a few weeks a few more weeks to get a video out and i, I was just not uh in the position to, to to feel comfortable with that uh i think because my my channel is is still very young not so many subscribers i want to i want to keep a, a creating more content constantly so at least the one one video every two to three weeks uh, would be great, um, especially as uh, I mean. Initially, I the first few tutorials I was able to do in one week, but then uh, sometimes when uh, when I had to do or when I wanted to do a tutorial for which on on some algorithm for which I didn't have an example or didn't have my own working code for that, that and I had to develop it from scratch, and it would take uh, much more time. I mean, if, if you, uh, the way that I work today um, is that it always, every video begins with a working uh, sample. Okay, so I, I, I need to get something working in my own environment. And from there, I, I continue to the, to the script. All my, uh, almost, all my, all my videos today are scripted. I found even, even the, the, the code review parts, I found out that, that, um, it just works best for me because the way that I work is sometimes I do 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, so I can record one page at, at one opportunity that I find, and then another page, another page, and then another half an hour later along the week to edit everything. So by using a script, it, it, it helps me, you know, just uh, to, to create the script, review it uh, a few times, and then just record it. It, it kind of creates a very uh, nice pipeline that works well for me. I, I can never find a few hours, you know, to just sit down and, and create, uh, you know, to record myself just talking about the code. I, I'm never able to do it uh, at the level that I expect. So um, 
I, I create um, I create the sample, a working sample. I create the script. I record the script. I edit the script, only the audio, and then I produce the video by adding all the all the visual elements on that, and then it goes off to 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 YouTube. So um, uh, there are a lot of places where this uh, pipeline can be improved uh, with with better tools, but right now I just I, uh, I can barely keep up with the with the current uh, speed. So uh, hopefully in the future I'll be able to improve it. I don't know. Okay, and how do you go about marketing and promoting your videos? Because obviously you know you enjoy the video creation, you enjoy the code, but you want people to view it. So the more people that view mm -hmm. it, you know, the better it is for the channel, better for you. And, you know, obviously you'll be happier by that. So how do you promote and market it? So um, usually I announce all my videos on Reddit. There's a Reddit, a subreddit for OpenGL with uh, about 20,000 people there. So whenever I announce a new video, I, I immediately... Immediately, I get a, a nice spike in the new subscribers uh, until you know it levels off. And um, also on Facebook, there are a couple of uh, OpenGL related uh, groups that I always uh, announce the video there, as well as um, there's a very nice guy called uh, Gendrik Ilner. Hopefully, I'm, I'm not butchering his name. He's doing the uh, graphics uh, graphics programming weekly, if, if I remember. It's a newsletter, uh, a weekly newsletter. Uh, and he is getting all sorts of um, resources, new resources that he finds or people send him, mostly uh, articles about uh, 3D graphics, often very advanced stuff that people are working on. And... Um, so he publishes his uh, his uh, newsletter. So um, I usually send him also uh, my um, uh, my videos, and he he publishes uh, uh, them as well. He, he also has a, a large following on Twitter, so he announces it on Twitter, and then many new people are introduced to the to the channel. Um, so the newsletter is a combination of uh, of both written materials and articles as well as videos like me that other people are uh, creating. And um, I mean, I have my own Twitter. Uh, not that I think it's 200 people right now that are following it. So uh, it's not that big a deal there. And also my own Facebook uh, group or page. And um, that, that, that's mostly it. I mean, um, I don't think okay. that there's... A lot of uh, where, where you can and what else can I do? <laughs> yeah, I know. Especially if you're not spending, you know, money at it at the problem. No. And no, no. So, which one do you find you know generates the most sort of views? Because I know personally, if you hit one of those, one or two of those Reddit groups, they definitely produce the most you know spike in you know viewers and clicks compared to stuff like Facebook? What's your experience? What produces, what do you say, the most results compared to the least one? Yeah, so, so I think that Reddit, as well as the, uh, the newsletter, are the ones that are bringing in the most, uh, 
the most uh, the most subscribers i think they have the largest following so they would get the the largest impact but it's interesting that i still see people coming into the channel from my own website so you know on on you've got those uh, youtube analytics on the youtube studio so they will mm-hmm. show you uh, exactly how many people, how many views you've got from uh, YouTube recommending your content to uh, or or sub or from the subscription feed, you know, people getting notified about a new video, and also how many people coming in what is called external uh, uh, external access, and and where exactly or how exactly it is, is this ex- external access partition from from Reddit to uh, to Facebook or whatever. And then I still see a lot of people coming in from my own website. So um, I guess when people on, on Google search for OpenGL tutorials, they often find my uh, my website and as one of the, the top uh, uh, search results. And then when they go in, they will see uh, the latest video. And then they often click on that and then they reach uh, the YouTube channel. So I... Uh, the fact that I that I have an external uh, my own website helps me a lot because you, you cannot really trust or you cannot let YouTube do the work for you. I mean, unless your retention rate is so high that just uh, YouTube pushes your video, and you know it, it sometimes happens to people, but uh, for me it never happens. So I uh, I feel like I have to do the work myself. If if I would just publish the video and expect you know organic uh, uh, views then it would probably have the number of views and have the number of subscribers that uh, i have and it's not that i have a lot okay and so you're doing you know actually no uh, i'll save the question for in a second so with the promotion side of things do you is it a continuous process where you you know do it at launch and then you keep doing it for a video or do you just mainly do it when that video launches and then you move on to the next video promoter next video promoter and you don't promote old videos anymore so i don't promote my old videos i mean promotion is kind of like a a one-step thing it's interesting because i found out that that publishing a video has so much uh, work and not just work in terms of time that you need to spend on it, but also a lot of things that you need to do. So it's like a, a checklist of, of a ton of a ton of mm. different things that you need to do. Um, so I have a list in my uh, in my Google Docs of the of the publishing checklist, and it, it keeps getting longer. I keep adding more <laughs> stuff that I need to to. The, for example, you need right now. I have early access to. Uh, uh, for the for the Patreon supporters, okay, so they're getting forty eight hours uh, early access. So check, I, ne- I need to make sure not to uh, to publish a video before they get their uh, uh, their benefit, and um, you know from from thumbnails to to making sure that the time codes are there, that the subtitles are there, and also for the publishing. So it's uh, and also to to make sure that the latest code in github is working to put a tag on it to back up the 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 project all the uh, the the resource files that went into the project project i always uh, back them 
uh, make a backup on, an, on a different drive. And so a lot of stuff that they need to do and also publish on Reddit, publish on, um, um, uh, on Facebook. Also, I forgot uh, need to say a big thank you to, to Jeff from, uh, from Cronus. Uh, there is a guy there named Jeff at Cronus. This is the organization which is responsible for um, creating and maintaining uh, the OpenGL. It's a kind of a consortium of several companies. All the big companies are there, Intel included, NVIDIA and everyone. And they are publishing or creating the OpenGL specification as well as uh, Vulkan, as well as other open, whatever, OpenCL, OpenCV, all these open standards. They are publishing it. And there's a guy named Jeff Jeff who is doing their um, social media stuff. And he every video that uh, I produce, I send him an email letting him know and he publish it, publishes it, on, uh, announces it on, on Twitter. And I also get a lot of access. I always see, uh, it's always interesting because uh, he, he lets me know when the, the tweet came up and then came out. And then I, I, I look at the analytics and after a few hours, I can, I can actually see the spike of the views going up as soon as more people were notified through Twitter because uh, OpenGL has, I don't know, uh, 10,000 or more 10K uh, followers on Twitter. So it's all, it's, it always brings in uh, views. So this is another important uh, source of, uh, of or place of marketing for me. And so uh, publishing the video just to, to make sure that, uh, that I've got everything uh, in place and didn't forget anything like uh, subtitles or whatever, Part of that is also the marketing. And then once I complete the checklist for the new video, then I just, you know, keep up with the comments and everything, try to try to, to get back to everyone uh, as soon as possible. And then it's uh, to continue to the next one. Okay. And so you, so you do a lot of graphics programming, which leans heavily towards gaming. Have you done any mm-hmm. direct game development and released any games? Uh, if not, would you in the future? Okay, so I haven't done any actual game development, um, but I plan. I mean, it's um, can't say that that I have an actual plan, but this is something on my wish list. So I have several books on um, game development. I'm, I'm really fond of uh, learning stuff uh, from books because. Uh, I think that books encapsulate uh, good books, especially. Um, they encapsulate a lot of experience that other people have, and this is the one of uh, one of the ways that you can get a head start by learning from other people, take advantage of their experience. And so, I have some books on game development, and um, this is something that uh, I would like to to do because you know, I see that. People, people who are interested in graphics development and game development, they are kind of like, you know, they're, they're trying to, to find their way around. And it depends on the, the amount of experience that the person has, because often they are not very proficient programmers. And so taking up on, on an API, like whatever, OpenGL, DirectX, Vulkan, it's, it's a major challenge and also... 
handling all the uh, the pipeline, the math, and and creating an application. Sometimes they are not very experienced in C or C plus plus, so uh, they're trying to find a way, and they will start. I mean, people who are not um, focused on 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 the game engines because using a game engine is is kind of like a different category. The game engine takes care of so much of the infrastructure that uh, you need to bring up. So it's kind of like not not something that not the type of audience that I'm targeting right now. I'm in, I'm targeting the people who want to to write stuff from scratch, whether it's because they are interested in it just from you know from the technical perspective or the technical challenge or they actually want for some reason to develop a game from scratch and so um once they they've passed the uh, the first few stages of getting something you know like a rotating cube or whatever and that the, they they want to continue to to creating a game so how would you do it and how would you separate the, the, the game code from from the, the part of the engine inside your game? You know, you don't want them to be intertwined in a way that you can't use the same technology in the, in the future. Um, so this is something that I'm very interested in doing, not just to uh, not just to, in order to publish a game, but uh, to to understand how to do it and and to to know how to explain it to to others, I think this is this is very challenging and interesting for me. Okay, and would you ever use an off-the-shelf game engine like Unreal, Codecast, Unity, Godot, or would you prefer just to create your own from scratch in OpenGL? Yeah, I would love to do some um, something on Unity on Unreal. Myself, you know, just to I think it's important to to understand what's there, to understand what you can do with it, and if you're working from scratch, then what you need to develop in order to uh, I, w- I wouldn't say match that, but um, uh, how shall I put it? But um, the way that the game is is created by a game engine. So if 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 you want to develop something from scratch, you need to bring out the advantages of of, uh, of working from scratch, and then uh, you need to understand the advantages and disadvantages of working with the game engine, and then it will help you focus on your from scratch uh, experience. You know. So yeah, I, I'll, again, it's just a matter of finding the time to do it. It's it's somewhere on the on the wish list, but you know, there are so much stuff to do before that. So I don't know when I'll be able to, maybe if, if I'll ever be able to, uh, to work on it full time, then yeah, I'll be able to, to dedicate some time to understand game engines more. Okay. So side question. So you live in Israel, there's a mandatory military service as far as I'm aware there. How was that experience for you when you did your mandatory military service and how do you think that formed you? as a person, especially doing your development, because that's, that's obviously a f- fair bit different to that. Yeah, so like most of the of high school graduates here, I, I, I joined the military when I, when I was about 18. And um, it was not very interesting. I mean, I, I don't have a lot to, to tell there. I mean, I, I was, uh, I had a computer job uh, there and um, mostly about data crunching 
um, specifically for for human resources that that's what I did um, so you know I, I don't have a lot of hero stories uh, to, to share so it's like you know three years of service and then immediately I remember about 10 days after I, uh, I finished my uh, was discharged discharged from the from the military I, I started the um, in the university, I entered the university and started learning, uh, studying uh, computer science. So this is very different from what most of the young people uh, who are out of the army here. Many of them, you know, they start by some soul searching. They 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 want to um, to explore the world and then go do traveling. But for me, it was you know it was not it, it was a no brainer because I was interested in computers. I wanted to study computer science. So, and that just in terms of the opportunity, because the, uh, the military service ended uh, in March, and then there's the, uh, you know, the, there are two semesters, there's, there's the winter semester, and then the, the, the spring semester starts at that time. So I just started the, in the university and continued from there. <clears throat> and in terms of affecting a person, yeah, I mean, a, a military service, whether... Whatever, wherever you are, uh, it helps you uh, become more of an adult. And so you, you look at the world more seriously. Um, we don't have stuff here like colleges in the United States where very young people uh, leave their houses for, for the first, for very first time and they have, you know, all the, uh, the young environment... Uh, around them. I mean, you're with young people in the military, but it's, it's very different from, from college life, obviously. Uh, so people have to, uh, have to get their head straight very fast, uh, in order to survive like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it affects people, um, basically make, makes them adults faster. Okay. And, and that's how I see it. So obviously it's mandatory in Israel. If let's say there was a country where it was optional to do it for a few years in a similar fashion, not mandatory, would you recommend it? Or would you say it's just not worth the time? Because I, you know, just in our discussions, you do seem very, you know, structured. You seem like, you know, the YouTube stuff that you have like a list, you have a plan, you know, of doing this, this, this and that. Was that formed from the, you know, the more rigid structure that you have in the military and is that sort of a in the culture in Israel in general because obviously the military you know part of it is so influential um i think it, for me it just came from from experience in life in general and and specifically in my career uh that it helps me when i when i do stuff structurally then it helps me actually get something done. And I don't know how much of the military affected that. It, it's difficult to say. I think it's just, you know, the years of experience of working with several companies, several, many people, different teams, different projects, it, you know, it, it boils down to that. And um, would I recommend, I mean, you know, in the, in the United States, uh, military service is voluntary. And I guess people 
who are drawn to it um, simply find um, find it. I don't know fits their character because you know it's uh, especially at the first at the early stages of service when you just start your training it's uh it's not like at home you know but people often find the the challenges in that uh attractive so um i th- i think it's i think it's too personal for me to um to to either recommend it or or not recommend it to uh anybody um i don't know that's a very large question because um you know it it, it affect it uh, it's also very dangerous depending on what you what you're doing because if you if you're um in many cases it's it's not it may not be dangerous if you're like in uh uh some some technical position um in some base or whatever, and you don't really, you know, it's not like uh, out there in the field, it's not that dangerous, but it's still very um, compulsory in the sense of, you know, you're a soldier, you you have to obey all orders and everything. Not not many people like that, but other people find that very, um, um, adds a lot of meaning to their life. So, and they are attracted to, to, to that. So depends on wh- what exactly you're going to do. Um, you know, I, I can't recommend. Um, I'm not the type of person that can recommend like going to to something like the Navy SEALs. Yeah, you, you need to take a SEAL in order to explain to you what what he found, or he she or he or she found in uh, um, attractive in in that kind of service and and uh, and explain because there are a lot of dangers involved. So this is not the kind of uh, service that I can recommend or not recommend you need to take someone from from inside that okay hopefully uh, that make made sense <laughs> made yeah sense no no, no. It, it, it makes total sense obviously so it's all it's all relative so with covid and everything um a lot more stuff has become remote how much of your you know job is remote and what's your opinion of remote working versus being in the office and how did you find the you know the whole COVID experience and what was it like over in Israel compared to, let's say, something in the West where there was like crazy lockdowns? Yeah, so we had our share of crazy lockdowns here initially. And for a a very long period of time, uh, all the work, I mean, since I think since March 2020, um, we've been working mostly remotely. And then in the past few months, um, it became more flexible. I think that right now, basically, we can work the entire week there. So five, five days a week, we can work at the office. And I myself, some of the people have actually in the team gone back to fully being on site. Um, I try to get uh, to get there about uh, twice a week. Some people do it uh, three times a week. So, for example, from... Monday to, to through Wednesday, and uh, so for me, I try to uh, to do some kind of a hybrid. So two days now, maybe three later on. They they are very flexible, allowing us to uh, to choose uh, how we want to work. I, other people simply prefer to work uh, remotely exclusively, and they do that. And um, in some ways, it was very challenging uh, because, especially 
initially when there were lockdowns and there were there were no schools and uh, so the kids were home so working with the with a couple of uh, young kids here was uh, was was very challenging you know there's there's a lot of noise and everything um and in other ways it's very easy because you know you're at home and from from a nutritional perspective it's always better uh, uh, food at home is always uh, better than everything that you can get outside that's that, that's the way i uh, i see it i mean it's always definitely more cleaner and more uh, healthy and uh, uh, also i like my wife's cooking so um, uh, for, for me it's a, it's a win-win always prefer to 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 eat at home and um, no, there's there are no you don't need to to commute. It's it's not like I have a large uh, commute today. It's like twenty minutes to get to the office, but it's still when you know getting to the car and driving and parking and everything. It's like you can save almost an hour every day from all the entire process of commute. So, but but then you need to make uh, uh, with commute. There is the advantage of kind of like a buffer zone before, after you finish work and before you get home, there, there's a buffer zone where you can drive and, and listen to a podcast or whatever. And now uh, you kind of like need to decide, uh, okay, I'm going to stop now or I'm going to work for another half an hour and the kids are already back and there is there's noise going on in the house. I need to decide, okay, so this is a good place to spot and then you immediately immediately switch to your other life and sometimes you know it, it takes time to it takes time to to, to sink in that's fair enough so, I think that's uh, okay and i mean yeah we've been going for almost two hours now so i think we'll wrap up here i've got a list of you know more questions that i want to ask but you know this podcast already gone for two hours and that's a you know good length for the audience, and we'll definitely have you back on again to you know go through the other questions. So one you know last question before we wrap up: What advice would you give as a developer to someone else that's starting out and that maybe wants to work for a big company? Because I know my wife, she like her dream job is to work at Cisco, and so like what advice, not just to her but just in general, would you give to someone as a developer? Yeah, so I think that um, the way that I judge code is that how fast can uh, other people uh, can get up to speed on that and make changes in it. And sometimes other people is often a future you. You know, uh, if you look at your code from three months, six months, a year in the future, how, how would you what would you say about it did you do a good, good job in terms of making it structured and uh, well documented not just comments but self-documenting in, in the, the structure and the design so that you can make changes and often I find that uh, striving for simplicity is very important so don't uh, just go blindfolded after new technologies yeah, for example, I, I had a piece of code that someone else written 
using uh, C++ variadic templates in order to, to implement something in very little amount of code. And that, that's okay, but the, the code itself was so difficult to read. It's, it's not a lot of pieces, it's just, just a few lines, but I would just prefer in that case to, to use you know, standard C++ without those templates. And even if it causes a bit of code duplication, you know, don't tr don't go out of your wits just to to avoid any code duplication. Sometimes uh, duplicating a small piece of code and and getting rid of uh, all the uh, the hooplas that you had to do in order to to remove it, to drop a code the duplication is better. So I think that um, uh, simplicity is is a very important. Uh, um, Thing in in programming, and um, I think that you know when you work with people. Okay, so another thing is don't get don't get attached to to your code. Okay, so if you remember uh, the movie Hit uh, and uh, and the mid nineties with Al Pacino and uh, Robert De Niro, he told him if you want if you want to get uh, if you if you if you want to get I don't remember the exact wording, but if you if you want to work as a, on the street doing what he did as a felon, then have nothing in your life that you can't uh, leave out on in thirty seconds. Okay, that because that was his life. He was like, there may be you if, as soon as you feel the heat around the corner, you need to drop everything and just leave. So you cannot have like a normal life. So in the case of code, don't get attached to the code that you've written. Always be able to drop everything and uh, do something uh, else. Uh, don't think that, don't be, don't get attached to your code just because you've written it. Always be ready to, to uh, rewrite it or whatever, or if someone tells you something, don't get offended because, uh, you know, it can be done uh, better. Just, you know, if, if you think about what they said, if you got a good advice, then just do it. Uh, people often get very uh, protective about what they've written and they don't want to change it or they get offended because someone criticized their uh, their work and um, you know sometimes the criticism is not delivered in a way which is very constructive or positive but still you need to to look at the technical merits of what uh, what you were told and um, you know just just take Take the advice and do uh, what's best for the project. Uh, I think it's it's very important. Um, yeah, just from the top of my head, a couple of advice. Some good advice. Yeah, definitely for sure. You don't be too married to you know your way of doing things, your code, your you know it could be your development, you know setup or whatever it is. You know, be open to change. And I think that's a pretty good yeah. you know piece of advice in general for life. But I, I definitely know develop. I know several developers that are i mean they're good and that does not help you know the fact that they're good and as a result they don't want to change because they know that they are actually good because because if they weren't that good i feel like they probably would be more likely to maybe change well because they you know they get their job done it works well usually they know a fair bit they you know feel like you know they can't learn anymore so yeah, there is that problem with developers, but it's it's, it's good advice in general. 
for people. And so, yes, I want to, you know, thank you, Ite, for jumping on, you know, the podcast today. Really appreciate it. I think everybody will, you know, have learned a lot, especially if they're, you know, looking to learn more about the ins and outs of startups, you know, companies. You know, I, I know I've learned a lot just from, you know, listening to you for the last, you know, couple of hours and really appreciate it. Would like to have you back on again soon and i'll put all the links for ite's work so you know the the website youtube you know the subreddit twitter all that stuff i'll I'll get all those links off you you know afterwards and i'll make sure that's in the description so you guys can check that out so thank you ite thank you everyone for listening and if you like the podcast just give it a five star rating on whatever platform you're on and yeah thank you sure well thanks for having me Bye-bye.